So the reading comes from Psalm 30, 130, um, and if you're using the Pew Bibles, it's on page 624, uh, but it'll be on your service sheet. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can, with reverence, serve you. I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord, more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. Well, thank you very much. And let me just, um, before I start, say another big thank you to the church. I'm very aware of uh, your your generous financial support to us, to our ministry, as well as for your prayers. You faithfully pray for us, from myself and from our family. Um, We we want to express our our heartfelt thanks for uh, for all that you do for us. Um, Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you are a God who is a forgiving God. Thank you that you love us. You undertake to forgive us our sins. Um, You are willing to take away our sins uh, forever. And we pray as we think about these things now from this uh, precious psalm that you'd speak deeply to us and help us to be challenged and to be grateful again for these um, these great truths. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I wonder, have you ever needed to shout for help at the top of your voice? Um, The only time I can ever recall having to cry for help at the top of my voice was when I was about 10, um, and my sister and I managed to get ourselves trapped in our garage at our family home. Um, I hadn't realised at that age there was a simple little cord on the door that I could pull to open it from the inside. No one had ever explained that to me. Um, So we we found ourselves trapped. We had no way to get out other than to to cry for help. Um, This was uh, around the time that... uh, uh, 999 with Michael Burke was on the telly. I don't know if any of you remember that. Um, uh, so I had it well drilled into my young imagination that um, very often everyday s- situations and simple everyday objects can lead to uh, um, life being in danger and serious emergencies. So I'd already started calculating how many hours we had left before we were going to die of thirst in that garage. Um, but I think in the end, after about 45 minutes of shouting for help, Uh, we were rescued. Well, Psalm 130 begins with a cry for help. The psalmist says, Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. Now, the psalmist says, Out of the depths I cry to you. Now, the depths in the the Bible is um, a language of near death. So perhaps this was a, a period of emotional despair for the psalmist, or perhaps his life was, was really in danger, or the life of the community. Um, it's not exactly clear from the psalm exactly what prompted his cry for help, but what is clear is that the psalmist understands what the root of his problem is, um, what the root of all our problems is, 
which is sin or sins. Um, Sin is probably the key word in this psalm. It comes um, at the start of verse 3 and then again at the end of verse 8, kind of bracketing that whole section, verses um, 3 to 8. And um, if you're not a regular in church, maybe you're not used to using the word sin other than as a a joke word. When the Bible talks about sin, I think it means turning away from God, ignoring God and deciding for yourself what's right and wrong. Uh, It means making up your own rules for how to live and refusing to go God's way. Uh, In terms of the structure of the psalm, it divides into four sections of two verses each, um, according to the, like like the NIV paragraphs have it. Um, And I think perhaps the easiest way to view this psalm is as a kind of A-B-A-B structure. So sections one and three, which is verses one to two and five to six, deal first of all with crying out to the Lord, um, verses 1 and 2, and then with waiting for the Lord to answer, verses 5 and 6. Uh, and then sections 2 and 4, that is verses 3 to 4 and verses 7 to 8, deal with the problem of sin, and specifically the psalmist reminding himself of God's goodness in saving us from our sins, with two importantly different key themes, I think, Um, The key theme in verses 3 and 4 is the idea of forgiveness from sins. And the key theme in 7 to 8 is redemption from sin, which are two different parts of God's solution to the problem, as we'll see. Um, This psalm has been described as one of the most evangelical psalms in the Bible. Someone commented that it's a psalm that could have been written by the Apostle Paul, um, since the themes of forgiveness of sins and redemption from sins are, are ones that come up so much in his New Testament letters. And the good news of God dealing completely with the problem of our sin rings out through this psalm. It's a very New Testament kind of psalm. Um, I'm going to look at this psalm under the headings of looking back to the past, waiting in the present, and then looking forward to the future. So I've got a kind of past, present, future thing going on here. Um, So verses 3 and 4, first of all, uh, looking back to the past... And seeing that God has no record of our sins. Let me read again verse 3. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can, with reverence, serve you. I think what is in view here is sin as a kind of death sentence over us that needs to be forgiven. Um, You may have seen the movie Lincoln, Steven Spielberg movie, about 10 years old, I think. Um, One of my favourite scenes in the film shows President Lincoln sitting up uh, late in the middle of the night during the Civil War, uh, reading through the papers of people who've been condemned to death and trying to decide um, in the middle of the night, exhausted from from the battle, in the middle of the night, um, trying to decide who he can get away with pardoning who his generals are going to let him get away with pardoning without being too uh, upset with him. And you have the impression of him as a a president who loved to show mercy and to forgive whenever he could get away with it, even when he was surrounded by by the battle and had the weight of a country on his shoulders. Well, how much more with God? It says, with God there is forgiveness. God is a God who does not keep a record of our sins. If he did... No one could stand, but with him there is forgiveness. Now, for most of us, these things are very familiar, I imagine, and um, 
I think very often when I think about the fact that God's forgiven my sins, I don't appreciate enough just how important it is. It can kind of slip into the, the background. Um, yes, I know that God's forgiven my sins, and I know that that's important. Uh, but what seems really important at the moment is um, maybe what colour carpets we should get, or whether England are going to beat Germany in the football, or things like that take on the foreground, and the, the fact that my sins have been forgiven slips easily into the background. Um, for me to get a sense of perspective, I find it quite helpful to think myself forward to the day when I'm going to be standing, waiting in the queue on the day of judgment, uh, waiting to stand before the living God and to hear his verdict on my life. He knows all the things I've ever thought and said and done, and there's no question that I've fallen far, far short of his standard. Um, I look at the holy and perfect God. I consider all the shameful and pathetic and horrible things that I did in my life, and I, 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 I cower in fear before him. And I imagine watching as one by one the people in front of me in the queue stand before their creator to be judged. And each time as they get to the front, God pronounces the verdict, guilty, guilty, guilty. And one by one, each one is taken away to eternal darkness. And then when I get to the front of the queue, instead of hearing the word guilty, I hear a different word. I hear the word forgiven. And God welcomes me into eternal life and gives me white robes washed clean in the blood of the Lamb. Well, when you view the thing with that kind of perspective, absolutely nothing in our lives could ever be more important than God's forgiveness. Perhaps some people have the opposite problem, that they, they, they find it impossible to believe that God really could forgive them their sins. Could God really forgive me for what I've done? Well, of course, God can forgive other people in this church, people who are basically good people. But could God really forgive me? Could he really forgive me for that terrible thing I did years ago that other people here don't even know about? Could he really forgive me for those sins done again and again in the darkness that keep coming back, however many times I try and turn away from them? Well, it's important to say, of course, that God's forgiveness is not automatic. With God there is forgiveness, but that doesn't mean everyone is forgiven. Um, the Bible's clear that forgiveness is for those who repent and believe, that is, who turn away from their sins and who turn to Jesus. If you haven't done that already, I, I would urge you not to delay because you don't know when it'll be too late. But if you have come to Jesus, if you're living a life of repentance, turning away from your sins again and again, even if the saved sins keep creeping in, then even if what you've done in your past terrifies you, with God there is forgiveness for each of us. With God, the record of your wrongs is gone. He doesn't even have the records anymore. Well, I talked earlier about Lincoln using his presidential pardon. US presidential pardons are often controversial and open to the charge of being unjust. Um, why should the president be allowed to pardon someone who's been justly condemned and sentenced by a legitimate court for his crimes? If the president pardons too many deserters during the war, won't it encourage more people to do the same? So what about God? Is God unjust in pardoning us? Does God not care about our guilt? Well, of course he does. And he showed it when Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. Our sins were not simply swept under the carpet. They were laid on God's own precious son on the cross. 
And notice as well, verse 4, that there is an outcome of God's forgiveness. It says, with you there is forgiveness, so that we can, with reverence, serve you. I think that means if we know that we're forgiven by God, then we'll want to serve him with reverence. If we believe that our sins don't really matter or that we have no sins to forgive, then maybe we'll be casual with God, we'll be matey with him. Uh, On the other hand, if we know that we're guilty before God but we have no forgiveness, then there's no reason to serve him at all. But if we understand the seriousness of our sin and we know that our sins are forgiven, then we'll want to serve God with reverence, looking back to the past and seeing that the record of our guilt is gone. Second, uh, verses 5 to 6, in the present, waiting, waiting for the Lord. Um, I don't know how you are at waiting. I'm painfully aware of my own impatience uh, when I'm tired, which is most of the time. My patience with my two little daughters is one of the first things to go out the window. Um, I don't think I'm alone in being bad with patience. It's often been said that our, our generation is not good at waiting We are a now culture. Um, I'm always struck by when we're back in the UK, anything I want I can order from Amazon Prime to be delivered to my door the very next morning. Um, And I'm told if that's not quick enough, then uh, Amazon are developing a drone delivery service so that I can have my order within 45 minutes. Um, Patience isn't something we're good at, but this psalm calls us to patience. Patience in waiting for God potentially for days or months or years. Now, I think it isn't clear from the psalm exactly what the psalmist is waiting for the Lord to do. Uh, It's possible he was waiting with the exiled Israelites in Babylon for God to restore his people to their own land. It's possible he was waiting for some kind of sign from God that a, a national sin of the people had been forgiven and that the covenant blessing was restored. And perhaps he's thinking more about his own life Um, Perhaps he's considering his own personal sin and the guilt and misery that it's brought about and he wants for God to overturn it and repair his mistakes and bring clear signs of his forgiveness. Well, whatever his situation, the waiting here is a waiting with confidence. Um, The two Hebrew words that are translated by wait and put your hope both contain the meaning of waiting with confidence, hoping with confidence. Um, This isn't a half-hearted kind of, uh, wouldn't it be nice if the Lord did something here, while deep down we believe that the outcome's probably going to depend on whatever we can scratch together from our own resources. No, this is a hope built on deep confidence. Um, The image of the watchman in uh, verse 6 is a picture of someone watching over the city during the night. Um, It was the watchman's job to guard the city from sudden surprise attacks. And um, as jobs go, it probably isn't anyone's idea of a satisfying and fulfilling career. I reckon you would have spent 99% of your time doing nothing at all other than sitting in silence, looking out into the darkness, um, perhaps with the nagging fear that bandits could suddenly appear out of that darkness and your life could be in danger. So no wonder that they longed for the signs of the morning. Um, Perhaps the the chirping of the morning birds, the gradual lightening of the sky that would signal that their shift is coming to an end and that the danger of the night is over. Yet at the same time, the watchman's waiting is a confident kind of waiting because he knows that whatever the darkness of the night, the morning is going to come. 
He knows there's, there's no doubt in his mind that, um, that the morning will arrive. He's not thinking that perhaps this time that this darkness is going to go on forever and the morning might never come. Though the watchman, as he watches, as he longs for the morning, he's confident that that morning is going to come and with it uh, rest and relief. I reckon often the Lord's purposes are entirely larger and more long-term than we imagine. Um, And I think we need to sometimes cultivate more of a long-term view of what the Lord might be doing in any situation. I read an article once about a family of Chinese believers who had their young son forcibly removed from him, uh, I think in the days of Chairman Mao. Um, As Christians, they couldn't be trusted to raise their child with the correct values, so he was taken away to be educated properly by the state. Now, can you imagine the suffering of those parents? Um, Can you imagine how they would have cried out to the Lord for that child? Not only to lose the child, knowing that in all probability you'll never see him again, um, but knowing as well that the people who are now raising your child have no love for your child. Um, They're not going to raise him in the knowledge of the Lord. He's merely, uh, for them, uh, a vehicle through which to propagate their own ideology. Well, imagine the heartache that those parents went through and how they would have cried to the Lord to intervene. Well, something like 30 years later, the boy's father decided to walk to a a neighbouring village one evening to hear of a a visiting preacher, uh, a Christian preacher who was becoming well-known in the area. So the the boy's father decided to go and visit this uh, visiting preacher. And as he listened to the preacher speak, uh, little by little it dawned on him that the person he was listening to must be his own son. Imagine that after years of praying, waiting, pleading with the Lord for this child, the joy of seeing what the Lord had done, as with tears in their eyes they were reunited. Um, Well, often we want God to solve our problems now, don't we? We We're desperate for God to bring healing now in whatever it is our hearts are, are aching about. Yet very often God's purposes are entirely larger than we imagine. Sometimes we have to wait 30 years to find out what God was doing. Sometimes it might take longer, maybe it won't take generations for it to become apparent what God is doing. In many cases, we'll have to wait until we can see from the perspective of eternity how all the pieces fit together. And as we wait, notice it says, in his word I put my hope, verse 5. Um, as we wait, we have God's word, the Bible, which is our source of confidence that we're not hoping in vain. I think sometimes this waiting is true in our battles with sin. We know where are the areas of our lives where we fail and fail and fail again. And we cry out to God and we want him, we're desperate for him to change us. And we can't understand why do we keep failing again and again in the same areas. Why doesn't God answer my prayers and take this, uh, this sin away? Why doesn't he give me the victory now in what I'm struggling with? Sometimes we get discouraged and we, we give up the battle because it's such a long fall And we see so little progress in our lives. Well, as Christians, we're called to wait for the Lord. Waiting with confident expectation. Just as we can be sure that the morning will come, God will eventually bring about his good purpose, greater and larger than we imagined. So waiting for the Lord is our present reality. Finally, verses 7 to 8, looking forward to the future and to full redemption 
uh, verses 7 and 8 says, Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. So the verses return to the theme of sins that we looked at in verses 3 to 4, but I think with a different focus. In verses 3 to 4, the focus was on sin as a kind of legal charge that stands against us, and the solution was forgiveness. Here in verses 7 to 8, the focus is on sin as a kind of miserable slavery that makes our lives unbearable, from which we need to be rescued. So redemption, or redeem, is the key word here, and it comes up twice in these two verses. Uh, Redemption is a word for talking about transfer of ownership from one owner to another. Uh, And in the Bible, the main place redemption language is used is in the Exodus. The people were redeemed from slavery in Egypt to belong to God. And when the Bible uses the word redemption, it evokes this whole history, which was a very important history for the people of Israel. Uh, God is a God who can take his people out of the most dire, crushing slavery after hundreds of years of misery and bring them into their own land, uh, a land flowing with milk and honey. And this idea of redemption grows and expands throughout the whole Old Testament to become a way of talking about how God redeems his people from all their troubles and sufferings. Um, But what's a little bit interesting here is that this is the only verse in the whole of the Old Testament where it talks about being redeemed not from suffering, oppression and misery, but from sin. Uh, Because even after the people of Israel were were freed from slavery in Egypt and brought into the good land that God had prepared for them, they discovered that actually their problems were far from gone uh, because their problems were deep inside them, their sins. You may remember in John 8 verse 31, uh, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Do you remember how the people responded? They said, we are Abraham's descendants, and we have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? And Jesus said, anyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now, the idea of sin as a kind of slavery, I think, is sometimes hard for people to understand. Um, People look at the church um, with uh, perhaps they see lists of rules and they believe that it's outside the church, outside of Christianity, outside of religion that we can be free. Maybe uh, free to sleep with whoever I want, free to indulge in whatever I want, free to love whoever I want, free to watch whatever I want, to take whatever drugs I want or drink whatever I want. Um, But it isn't hard to see how taking bad decisions in these kinds of areas can lead to bad habits and addictions that draw us in and we can't get out. Um, Addiction to alcohol, to drugs, to pornography. Well, it's easy to see how these things can draw us in and enslave us um, so that we can't get out. Uh, But actually the same is true of of other sins that might be more hidden. Um, Maybe the sin of uh, bitterness, an addiction to bitterness, Uh, endlessly churning over the wrongs that people have done to us in the past. Perhaps an addiction to gossip, uh, living off the news of others and and finding our own value in the failings of others. Well, whatever the sin, its nature is always to lead to more sin in a kind of unending downward spiral. Hence Paul said, Romans 6.19, how you can offer yourselves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness. 
Timothy 2.16, those who indulge in godless chatter will become more and more ungodly. 2 Timothy 3.13, evil men and imposters go from bad to worse. The nature of sin is always to, to take us deeper and deeper in. We go, go from bad to worse. As we indulge in sin, we become more, more sinful. God becomes more absent. He gives us over to, to deeper and deeper sin. Uh, sin's a, a habit-forming and addictive, and it becomes a kind of miserable uh, slavery. Um, C.S. Lewis made this point well when he said... It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. Close quote. Well, the nature of sin, whatever the sin is to make us worse and worse on that kind of downward spiral, becoming increasingly a creature of, of nightmares on into eternity. It's a miserable slavery. Um, yet, by God's enormous mercy, this kind of endless march deeper and deeper into sin and slavery is not the final word, because it says, with God there is unfailing love, and with God... There is redemption. When Jesus died upon that cross, he paid a price to bring us, to buy us back from the slavery where we were. All the darkness, all the misery accumulated by the sin, uh, the perversion, the twistedness of countless millions of people was poured out on him on that cross, taking our punishment so that we can be free. Um, let me just end with, um, you might be familiar with the three tenses of salvation. Um, I don't know who came up with this, but I find it very helpful, and it could be based on this psalm. In the past, we have been saved from the penalty of sin. In the present, we are being saved from the power of sin. In the future, we will be saved from the presence of sin. In other words, in the past, the record of our sins has been done away with. We no longer face a punishment because of them. In the present, sin is still with us, but it no longer has the same power over us as it used to. We're no longer condemned to the downward spiral of being more and more, becoming more and more twisted, more perverse, more evil. Um, yet it's only in the future when finally we'll be saved from the presence of sin completely, when we'll dwell in the presence of the Lord in uh, perfect goodness. Let's pray. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. Father, we thank you so much that with you there is full redemption. We thank you that that redemption is possible. We thank you that that forgiveness is possible. Thank you that we are no longer slaves to sin. Thank you that the threat of punishment for our sins that hangs over us is gone. And that thank you that as we wait in this fallen world... We're looking forward to a better day when finally we'll be perfectly redeemed from all our sins. Lord, we long for that day where we'll stand before you not suffering because of our sins in the way we are at the moment, but in, in your perfect righteousness, goodness and holiness. So help us, we pray, please, to stand firm in our faith until that day. 
In Jesus' name, amen.